screaming from the mountain. Go on and tell it to the masses that He is God. And Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father, for, for, the, for the story that we have to tell, that we have to shout, uh, Lord, of, of our salvation. And we sing that today in light of uh, just looking at the, the baptismal pool, even in front of, of all of us in this room. And it's just, I love how symbolic that that, that, that is, uh, that uh, we're, we're all surrounding it in, in some senses, and, uh, and what that pool represents the stories, the testimonies, Father, that, uh, uh, Lord, there's no, there's no lights or a show or anything when it comes down to, to, to that pool and that place and that declaration and that story. Lord, it speaks for itself. The gospel speaks for itself in your testimony among our, us as brothers and sisters in Christ. So we thank you, Father, for the opportunity to, to share those testimonies, to hear them. Would you be with Will, Lord, as he, uh, as he brings the the word to us this morning, uh, we just thank you for him and, and his anointing and uh, his incredible teaching. Lord, would you uh, be with him and, and just, uh, we just thank you again. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, well, good morning, church. Is my mic on? Are we good? All right. So good morning. And uh, I told the, the first service, I, you know, it, it hits me still just how good looking Tri-Village Church is, man. It just, you kind of, you right? amen, right? Amen. Um, you know, I got to lead by example, but, you know, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Uh, as long as Lily thinks it's fine. As long as thinks I'm good looking, it's good, right? And she's not here to say I'm not, so, so she, she, it's good. Anyways. Uh, just so glad to be here with you, and uh, listen, if you're new here, we're so glad that you are visiting us uh, this morning. We started Tri-Village for people just like you. We, we didn't start Tri-Village to be this, uh, this, this community, this country club of people coming together and just focusing on each other, but we started Tri-Village for people who, who, were, who are still exploring Christianity and trying to figure out if this whole God thing is for them. And so we're so glad you're visiting us. And if you are new here, you have no idea who I am. My name is Will Franco. I'm the, one of the pastors here at the church. And what I would love for you to do, if you, are, if you are willing, I would love for you to grab one of the Connect cards that it was on your seat, one of those white Connect cards. Just go ahead and fill that out and just fig, uh, fill out the I am new here bubble. If you take that to the welcome desk, which is right in front of the pond out there, um, you can get a gift from us. And it's just an appreciation from us to you, just thanking you for being here and visiting us. And so, um, yeah, in another way, that's another way for us to know you are here. Our church, as it continues to grow, it's harder for us to see all the new people that are arriving. So just we're grateful for you, and we hope we can connect with you sometime this week. Now, this week, uh, I'm, I'm pretty excited because, as many of you know, we've been in this series entitled The Upside Down Kingdom. But we're taking a break from that series. And, and the reason why is because this morning and then tomorrow, next, next Sunday, we're celebrating something called 
Missions Fest. Now, Missions Fest is not something that originated with us. It's something that's actually been around for a long, long time. And uh, for those of you who might not know, Tri-Village Church is a campus of Wheaton Bible Church. And Wheaton Bible Church is a church that's actually in West Chicago. So I'm not sure why the name is Wheaton, but it's in the city of West Chicago. So, so they're, they're confused a little bit down there. But, um, but here's what Wheaton Bible Church uh, um, does. Every, month, every October, so the last two weeks of October, they have this thing called Missions Fest. And what they do is they celebrate, on one Sunday, they celebrate what they're doing locally. Uh, in as far as missions goes. And then the second Sunday, they celebrate what they're doing globally. And so one of the cool things that we get to do as a, as a, as a fairly new church, we just, you know, celebrated our second year anniversary a few weeks ago, is we get to celebrate Missions Fest. And that's, that's something that a lot of new churches don't get to do because you really don't start building that type of reputation unless you're 10 or 20 years old. And so it's really cool that we get to celebrate Missions Fest and not only celebrate what's going on over there at WBC, but in a lot of ways celebrate some of the cool things that God is doing here. And so that's part of the reason why today is special. Another reason why today is special is, is as you can tell by the, this tub here in front of me, uh, we get to celebrate baptisms today. And so we're really, really excited about that. And um, I'm really looking forward to you guys, for you guys to hear some of the stories and what God's doing and the individuals who are being baptized. So we're going to do that at the end of the message, but we're looking forward to that as well. Now, Today, you know, as I was thinking about it, I was like, you know, how, how do we approach this subject, right? Because when you talk about mission, there's so many passages in the Bible about mission. And, and as I was praying about it and looking for passages to, to, to preach on, I came across a passage that on the surface doesn't really seem like a missions fest passage. Um, and, and the reason why is because what we're going to see is that this passage, instead of focusing on mission, what it's actually focused is on the message behind the mission, all right? And the reason why I think that's so important is because I think part of the reason why a lot of us don't, aren't on mission is because we don't understand the message that sends us on mission. And, and to the degree that we understand that message, I feel that to that same degree, we will be forced, we will be compelled to be on mission. And so we're going to look back before we look forward. We're going to look at what motivates us before we talk about what needs to be done. And, and so the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning comes from the book of Romans, and we're going to be in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. If you're new to the whole Bible thing, uh, Romans is in the New Testament. It's after the book of Acts, before the book of 1 Corinthians. And so if you just open to the end of your Bible and go left, uh, you will eventually hit Romans. Okay, it is closer to the back of the Bible than it is to the beginning of it. And we're going to be in Romans chapter 1, 16 through 17. Another thing is, if you don't have a Bible, on your way out, there's a white cart there that has uh, Bibles there. You could take one with you. It's our gift to you, and you can start reading the Bible in your personal time uh, throughout the week, okay? So Romans 1, 16 through 17, and one of the things we do here is we have people stand for the reading of God's words. So if you guys can please stand as I read this passage, and as we prepare our hearts for the word of God. Here's what it says in Romans 1, 16 through 17. Paul says, writing to the church in Rome, he says, for I am not what? Ashamed, Ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the what? The power of God that brings salvation to everyone who what? Believes. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by? From first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. It's the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. 
And Lord, we know that your word is living and active. But I also know that I can get in the way of your word. I also know that instead of giving your wisdom, I can start giving my wisdom. And so, Father, I ask you, even as we read your word, even as I handle your word, I pray that you would help me to not say anything that does not come from you. I pray that you would speak through me from the moment I say amen so that your name would be glorified and your people can be edified. And we ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so um, this morning we are going to be addressing, like I said, before we talk about the mission that we are sent on, I want to talk about the message that saves us and sends us on that mission. I, I feel that to the degree that we understand the message, to that same degree we will be on mission. And so what we're going to do is we're going to be addressing the, the, the gospel, the, the, the message that God has given us. And we're going to look at the gospel under three headings this morning. We are going to look at the barrier to the gospel then we are going to look at the power of the gospel, and then we're going to conclude by looking at the hope in the gospel. All right, so we're going to look at the barrier, the power, and the hope. Now, before we jump into these three points, what I want to do is I want to give you a definition for the word gospel. And the reason why is because I don't want to make the assumption that you know what the word means, okay? Now, there's there's a couple reasons for this. One is because if you're new to the whole church thing, you maybe have never heard this word. Maybe you've heard it and you're like, I don't even know what that means. So part of the reason why I want to give you a definition is because you you don't have a definition for it, right? But the other reason why I want to give you definition is because Christians, people who are walking with Jesus, some of them have the worst definition for this word. So even though they've been saved by it, they actually don't understand what the word means. So since we're going to be using the word so, many, so often in this message, I want to give you a definition so that you know exactly what I mean by the word gospel. So let me explain. This is the definition. The gospel is the good news concerning the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. The gospel is the good news concerning the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. So so let me unpack this definition for you because in this definition what we see is that Christianity is radically different than any other religion on the planet. Okay? Radically different. To the point where it's not actually a religion. It's a relationship with somebody. Okay? The first thing I want you to see, the first phrase I want you to see there is the word or the phrase good news. Now, one of the things that's happening in our day, especially, uh, you know, uh, these, these past few days, is that we are in election season. And so one of the things that we do during election season is we are focusing on the news media. And our news media can come from newspapers, it can come from websites, right? It can come from cable TV channels like CNN and MSNBC and Fox News and, you know, whatever other cable TV, you know, news channel you go to, right? And so one of the things that we are very aware of especially at this time, is the news media. What's my radio saying? What's my newspaper saying? What's my television saying? And news is very important to us in our day and age. Now, the thing is, though, is that in Jesus' day, in Paul's day, there was also media. But the news media of their day was very different from the news media of our day because our news media is instantaneous, right? So all I got to do is turn on NPR. All I got to do is turn on my TV. All I got to do is open up my newspaper and there's my news, right? Or or open up my email and there's my blog. But what you see though is that in Jesus's day, in Paul's day, there was also a form of news media, but it was very different from the type of media that we are used to, okay? Back in this day, the news media consisted of this. It was a guy on a horse, That was news media back in Paul's day. It was a dude on a horse, okay? So let's say, for example, that your town, your people group, uh, 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 your nation was at war. 
If you weren't one of the soldiers, you would have no idea what was happening on the front lines. And the only way you would know if you were winning or losing or if you had won or lost was if a dude showed up on a horse and told you about it. And what they would do is they would ride up to your city gate and you would see them from miles and miles away, depending on the landscape that you were on. And so all the anxiety would start to build. The watchmen would see the guy and they're like, he's coming, he's coming. And, and you would be tempted to go run ahead of everybody to find out what the news was. But he would show up and then he would say one of two things. He would either say victory or defeat. We won or we lost. And everybody got their news media at the exact same time. And those men were called heralds. And what heralds do is they would ride from town to town and from city to city, and they would tell people, hey, here's what just happened over there. That's how you got your news. So if there was a victory, if there was a loss, another time that the heralds were very important, especially in the Roman Empire, which is the empire that they were in, um, if, if, if a Caesar died, there would be tons of instability, right? Because they they, no one would know who the next Caesar was. And everybody would be sitting there on pins and needles trying to figure out who the next Caesar was. So the herald would come and they would announce, it's this person or it's that person. They wouldn't stay. They would keep going because the next town had to hear the news. And that's what news media looked like back in Paul's day. Very different from the media that we're used to, okay? Now, the reason why I bring that up is because I want you to see that the gospel, that Christianity, here's why it's different from any other religion. Because it's not good advice, it's good news. Because here's what you could do with advice, right? Every other religion gives you good advice, right? Whether it's Mormonism or Islam or, Jew or, 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 or the Jewish religion, they give you good advice. They say, hey, hey, listen, listen, we have some advice for you on how you can live. And if you follow our advice, maybe God will accept you. Maybe Allah will accept you. That's usually what other religions do. They give you a list of rules. They give you a, 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 a set of advice. And then you determine whether you take all of the advice or just half of the advice or none of the advice. It's up to you because that's how advice works. I either listen to it and obey it, live in light of it, or I don't. But this is not advice. It's not good advice. If you're coming to Tri Village for advice, you're at the wrong church. Amen? Because we're not here to give you advice. It's good news. And you know what I love about news, right? That it doesn't matter what you think about the news, it's still news. Right? So, so, so some of us might not like the current president. Some of us might not like the, like the president before the current president. But it doesn't matter if you say, that's not my president. That's the president. Right? Maybe you didn't like the last one. or Maybe you don't like the current one. But that's the president whether you like him or not. Because fact is fact. And so what we do is, well, that's not my truth. I don't believe that. I don't know. That's, I don't, I don't, that's not my opinion. It doesn't matter what your opinion is. There's things that are true and there's things that are not true. And that's how news works. Either you accept all of it or you don't accept none of it. You can't take part of it, right? Because here's what would happen when, 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 when the heralds would show up at these cities and they would say, hey, we won. You could, you have your choice, right? You could either live in light of the fact that the victory has been won or you can live like you lost. But the response was up to you. There's some people who might say, oh, so the, the guy comes back and says, hey, we lost. He's like, I don't believe we lost. Nah, we didn't lose. I'm not gonna listen to what he said. And then a few, a few hours later, a, a, an army comes and conquers your city. Doesn't matter what you think. That's what news is. News is news. Okay? And this isn't fake news. This is real news. So with news, it's not like advice where you can take it or, or leave it or take part of it and leave the other half of it. No, no. Either you believe it and act like it happened or you don't believe it. The gospel is good news that says Jesus has won. You can either live in light of that or you can not live in light of that. But that's how news works. And that's why the gospel is different from every other religion because it's news and not advice. Okay? 
But here's the other thing that's just so, so fascinating about this, this, this good news, this, this gospel message. It says, it is the good news concerning the finished work of Jesus on our behalf. In other words, okay, Jesus, when he died on the cross, he didn't say, hey, I'm almost done. When he died on the cross, he said, man, I got just a little bit left. I did 98%, now you do 2%. No, no. When Jesus died, he says, it is finished. It's done. Every other religion is all about what you need to do. Christianity is the only message that's all about what's been done. It's not about go do, it's all about it's been done. When you understand that it's been done, that's the news you're accepting. Either you believe it's done and you stop performing, or you don't believe it's done and you keep being religious. It's not about do, it's about done. In other words, because it's good news, the gospel is not about achieving, it's about receiving. You better write, someone better write that down, man, because that was, that was good, okay? Okay, you better write that down, because, man, that's gold, okay? The gospel, because it's good news, not good advice, it's not about achieving, it's about receiving. And that's what makes the gospel, that's what makes Christianity radically different and absolutely opposed to every other world religion, Okay? That's just the definition, guys. I'm already, pre- I'm already preaching, and that's just the definition, okay? So, so let's, we haven't even started the three points yet. Okay, so now that we have a, a, a definition of what the gospel means, then now we can actually look at these three, these three principles, these three, these three truths, okay? So here's what Paul in this passage tells us about the, the, the gospel. The first thing he tells us is that there is a barrier to the gospel. There is a very significant barrier that if you're not aware of can stop you from believing the gospel, okay? So look what he says at the beginning of this passage. He says in verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. And what Paul does in the first half of verse 16 is he actually reveals to us, he actually identifies to us the greatest barrier to the gospel in your life. And you ready for this? You, know you want to know what it is? The greatest barrier to the gospel in your life is you. The greatest barrier to the gospel working in my life is me. The greatest barrier to the gospel working through me into the lives of others is me. It's you. You're the greatest barrier. I'm the greatest barrier. And we know it is because the second word he says is I. For I. The problem with the gospel is that it's got to go through I. And we are the problem. We are the barrier. We are the thing that keeps. I always think, man, how much, how much greater, how much bigger would the church be if people weren't involved? Like if God didn't use us. The church would be a lot bigger if he didn't use people like us. The greatest barrier to the gospel in your life and as a result in the lives of others through you is you. And Paul then, he uses an emotion. He says that, this was really fascinating to me because as I was studying this week, I'm like, out of all the emotions that Paul could have felt, why does he use the word ashamed? The word there, ashamed, means to feel disgraced. It means to be embarrassed. Why, do, why does Paul have to say that he is not ashamed of the gospel? Well, one commentator, one scholar that I read, he said, here's why. The, the only, think about your own life. The only time that you're tempted to say you're not ashamed of something is, it, is when that thing can cause shame. That there's something that's shameful about that thing. Okay? Now, I know that sounds heretical because it, it sounds like I'm saying the gospel is shameful, but here's what I mean by that. Paul in, in Corinthians says that the gospel is so offensive 
that to some people it is the aroma of life and to others it is the aroma of death. And so the gospel is actually, the more you understand the gospel, the more, this is an extremely offensive thing. There's a lot of reason to be embarrassed of the gospel if you actually understand what the gospel says. And so shame is, even though a lot of us don't connect us being ashamed of the gospel, we're actually more ashamed of the gospel than what we think. Because the gospel is extremely offensive, the Bible says. It is a stumbling block, the Bible says. It is an aroma of death, the Bible says. And so when you understand it, one of the emotions that can, te- that can happen, the more you understand it, is shame. Embarrassed. You're embarrassed of the gospel. And Paul says, I'm not. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because Paul knows that if he's not careful, the greatest barrier to the gospel is him. And so he removes himself as a barrier when he is no longer ashamed of the gospel. Now, some of you might be sitting here thinking, now, you know what, hold on, hold on, hold on. How do you know that I'm ashamed of the gospel? You don't know me. You don't know my story. You don't know where I came from. Because, like I said, because the nature of the gospel is the way it is, because the gospel is so offensive, we are all more ashamed of the gospel than what we think. And I'm going to give you, there's three reasons why we might be tempted to be ashamed of the gospel. I'm going to put them up here on the screen. One reason is the source of the gospel. Another reason why we might be tempted to be ashamed is the content of the gospel. And then the third reason is the function of the gospel. So let's look at each one, okay? The first reason why you and I might be tempted to be ashamed of the gospel is because of the source of it. In other words, its origins, where it comes from, okay? Here's what's so crazy about what Paul's doing here. Paul is writing to the church in Rome, and he tells them, I have the answer. I have the power. I have the solution to all your problems. Now, think about all the churches that Paul writes to. He writes to the church in Philippi. He writes to the church in Ephesus. He writes to the church in Colossae. But there's the, what's so interesting about this church in particular is that this city, the, the, the church in Rome, was the hub of the entire empire. Okay? Paul says that the answer to all our problems, the, the, the ultimate power, the ultimate king, is not Caesar, it's a carpenter. It's not found in Rome, it's found in Jerusalem. Actually, it's, it's not even Jerusalem, it's actually Nazareth, because that's where Jesus comes from. So, so if, if, if Jerusalem was already unknown to the Romans, how much, how much more unknown is Nazareth? And Paul shows up and says, no, 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 listen, the real king doesn't, doesn't sit, on, doesn't sit uh, on a throne, he died on a cross. He's not a Caesar, he's a carpenter. He's not from Rome, he's not from New York, he's not from Los Angeles, he's not from Chicago, he's not from Silicon Valley. He's from Nazareth. And so one of the reasons why we might be tempted to be ashamed of the gospel is because of its origins, because of where it comes from. It's not, everything else in the world is top down. The gospel is bottom up. And so if we're not careful, one of the, ways, one of the reasons why we might be ashamed is because of where it comes from. It's not, it's, it's not attractive to the elite. That's why it says that it's hard for the rich man to enter the kingdom of God because it's for the poor. It's for the marginalized. It's for the broken. It's for the weak. God uses the foolish things in the world, the Bible says. And so the source is one of the reasons why the origins of the gospel is one of the reasons why we might be tempted to be ashamed of the gospel. Now think about it. There's two types of cultures in the world we live in. There's modern cultures and there's traditional cultures. We in the West live in a modern culture. And then when you go to to Asia and to India and places like that, you have more of the, or even Latin America, you have more of the traditional cultures. But modern cultures, the reason why they find the gospel so foolish is because it's so primitive. Well, what do you mean I'm a sinner? What do you mean I need a savior? What do you mean that God's mad at me? I don't even believe in God. 
And so for modern cultures, they can't believe the gospel because it's below them. It's primitive. That's for simple folk, right? But then traditional cultures, they can't believe the gospel, not because it's primitive, but because it's offensive. Wait, what do you mean I can't fix myself? What do you mean I got to follow rules? I have my own set of rules. So, so what, for one, it's, it's, so for the modern people, it's too simplistic. It's too primitive. And then for the traditional folk, it's too easy. What do you mean I, I, I don't do anything? I just have faith and it's a gift. It's not something I earn. See, so one of the reasons why we might be tempted to be ashamed of the gospel is because the gospel is shameful. The gospel is offensive. And so the origins of the gospel, the source of the gospel, is one of the reasons why we might be tempted to not share it. But another reason is because of the content of the gospel. The actual content of the message is offensive. And if we're not careful, we can be ashamed of it. Think about what the gospel says. The gospel doesn't say that we are students in need of a teacher. The gospel doesn't say that we are wanderers in need of direction. The gospel says we are sinners in need of saviors. In need of a savior. You're a nobody, and so you need somebody to come do something that you couldn't do. The gospel is about, hey, you don't do anything because Jesus did everything. That's the content of the gospel. And so people are offended by that. They don't want to hear that. You see, one of the things that I find fascinating about our culture is that people say, oh, the people, our culture hates the Bible. Our culture hates the Bible. I don't don't think that's true. I think there's parts of the Bible that our culture likes. Like, for example, our culture likes the Moses story, and they like the David story, and they like the Joseph story. You know why? Because those guys are examples that we can learn from. Hey, I can learn from him. Wow, that's a great principle for life. I'm going to use that in my business, right? The, The culture has nothing to do, it's not the Bible that offends the culture. It's the gospel that offends the culture. Because if, if you preach, if I get up here today and, and there's a bunch of unchurched people here and I tell them about David and three ways on how we could be more like David, they're like, oh my gosh, this is like a TED talk. I want to be more like David in my purity. And I want to be more like David in how I, how I give and, and how I pray. And oh my gosh, this is, no, that's not offensive. Because if all I do is tell you how to be more like David, then I'm no different than any synagogue in America. Okay? We're not called to be like David. We're called to be like Jesus. And Jesus is the one who's offensive. The gospel's offensive. You can bring up any Bible story you want. You bring up Jesus at work, and I guarantee you people are going to walk away from you in the cafeteria. Lunch is over after that. <laughs> so, so it's the content. People love examples. Oh, it's another example. There's David, and there's, there's Moses, and, there's, and that's why a lot of churches don't offend people. Because every week is just three more ways on how to be like Moses and Abraham and, and, and whoever the next person is. It's not offensive. It's just works-based righteousness on how to be more like this person or that person. That's not offensive. It's not the stories that offend people. It's the gospel that offends people. And so if you come to Tri-Village, you're going to be offended. So it's the content. It's the content. Okay? Then the last reason why we might be tempted to be ashamed of the gospel, if we're not careful, we might be tempted to, 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 to be embarrassed of the gospel is because of the function of the gospel. Here, here's what I mean by this. Here's how the gospel works. The only way the gospel works is if it works in you first and then through you second. Okay? In other words, the only way you can be on mission is if the message impacts you first. And then you go out and do it. But but here's, here's here's the problem. A lot of us, the reason why we are not sharing, the reason why we are not missional, the reason why we are, listen to this, the reason why we are ashamed of the gospel on the outside is because the gospel hasn't dealt with our shame on the inside. I have external shame because I haven't dealt with my internal shame. 
See, some of you, because of your background, and this includes me, for a long time I dealt with, with shame and regret and guilt. I've, I've done some stupid things that I hope none of you ever find out about. But here's the thing. When I came to Jesus and I found out I was forgiven, it's like I, he forgave me for 98% of what I did, but there were certain things that I just knew he couldn't forgive me for. There were certain burdens that I was just going to have to carry. Because I can't take that day back. I can't take that moment back. I can't take that season back. You can't forgive me for that one, Jesus. I'm going to go ahead and carry that one. That's how a lot of us are. We have shame. We have guilt. And because the gospel hasn't dealt with our inner shame, then it results in external shame. We don't, we don't share it with people because we haven't tasted it ourselves. How can I help you see that the Lord is, taste and see that the Lord is good if I haven't tasted and seen that the Lord is good? One of the things I pray for all the time when I get up to preach is, Lord, help me to eat from what I'm trying to serve others. Because if I'm not eating from it, then why am I serving it? And the reason why a lot of us aren't sharing the gospel, the reason why we are ashamed of the gospel externally is because the gospel hasn't dealt with our shame internally. If I don't believe Jesus is good enough for me, why am I going to think he's good enough for you? You know one of the things that convicted me, and you guys are going to laugh when you hear this, but one of the things that convicted me as I, as I, as I was navigating this passage, and I'm going to talk about this more in the next point, is that I realized I don't preach the gospel enough. Like, I've always wanted Tri-Village to be a gospel-centered. I don't preach the gospel enough to myself. Uh, 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 during the, during the, the, the last hour, we had uh, Alex share his testimony with, with our church. He's going to be baptized in a little bit. He was sharing his testimony. And I was sitting there, and I was like, you know, I didn't realize how much guilt and shame I still have in my own life. And part of the reason why I'm not overflowing with, with gratitude and with joy and can't wait to tell other people about Jesus is because I'm not actually letting the gospel transform me. So how's the gospel going to transform you if it hasn't transformed me? Amen. And you know what the Lord said to me while I was sitting there listening to his testimony? Because I know I don't believe it. You know, I, I, I have felt very overwhelmed lately with all the physical stuff and all the things I have on my plate. And I feel like I'm spinning a bunch of plates. I'm performing on multiple stages. And it, it gets tiring. And you know what I felt the Lord tell me while, while Alex was sharing his testimony? He said, well... You never have to preach another sermon. You never have to give another dollar. You never have to meet with one more person, and I still love you and accept you. See, but I don't believe that, and so that's why I needed to be reminded of it. Because I think if I could just do enough, I can, I know I have those things that I did that I just can't take back, but if I could just read enough, if I could just pray enough, if I could just preach enough, and God will forgive me. No, no, God's already forgiven me. Listen, there's nothing that I can do to make God love me more, and there's nothing I can do to make God love me less. Because God loves me the way he loves Jesus. I didn't bring that up in the first service, so that means someone had to hear it in this one. Okay? So the function, I can only give what I have received. I can't give away something I haven't gotten. The gospel has to transform my inner shame before it starts to deal with my outer shame. Okay? So the function of the gospel is essential. And you know what I would say about the function before we move on? I can't tell you how many times I come across, I come across Christians who are struggling with discouragement. They're struggling with doubt. They're struggling with defeat. They feel overwhelmed. They're struggling with fear and anxiety. And the reason why is because they're not believing the gospel. They're, they're, they haven't dealt with their inner shame, their inner guilt. And so they think that on good days, God is going to use me. On bad days, God is going to forget me. But what we know about the gospel is that it's not your good day that defines you. It's not your bad day that defines you. It's Jesus' worst day that defines you. 
That's what we see. That we don't actually believe the gospel. So I can't give you something I don't have. And that's why if you go back to the passage really quick, he says something, the word here, I missed this in the first service, but he says that it brings salvation. The word there, salvation, means wholeness. It brings salvation to everyone who believed. See, but we don't actually believe that. What we think is that God gives grace and salvation to everyone who behaves. Okay? That's what we functionally believe every morning. Every morning I get up, God's going to bless me and be with me if I behave. Not if I believe, if I behave. And so on good days, God blesses me. On bad days, God is mad at me. The problem is that's not the gospel. So if, if I believe it's about behaving, then why am I going to tell you about believing? It's not those who behave, it's those who believe. So let's go to the second point. The first thing we see is the barrier to the gospel. And what we see is that the greatest barrier to the gospel is us. And the second thing we see in this passage is we see the, the power of the gospel, the power of the gospel. Look what, look what Paul says next. I'm going to reread the first part again and then reread the sec, the, the, then read for the first time the second part. It says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the what? The power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believe, believes first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. So what Paul is saying here is that we have access to the power of God. But if you, really, if you look at the passage, he says, because it is the power of God. So I don't know about you, but it's important for us to figure out what the it is, because I want more of that it. If that's the power of God, what's the it that Paul talks about? Well, he actually, the it is modifying the first part of the verse, where he says, for I am not ashamed of the what? The gospel. So the it is the gospel. Now, guys, follow with me here, because this is really important. So many people preach this wrong. Here's what this means. The gospel is not a means to God's power. The gospel is not the pathway to God's power. The, the gospel is not a display of God's power. The gospel doesn't result in God's power. The gospel is God's power. It is his power. It's not kind of his power. It doesn't lead you there. It's not a compass that takes you there. The gospel is the very power of God. If you want God's power, you need the gospel. That's what that's saying. I, I, I didn't even understand that until I started looking at this passage. This blew my mind that the power of God is the gospel. The gospel is the power of God. It doesn't take me there. It doesn't display it. It doesn't let me experience it. No, it is the power of God. And so we need the gospel because we need God's power. And if, you don't, if you're not experiencing God's power in your marriage, in your parenting, in your finances, in your past, I don't know where it is that you need God's power. It's because you're not preaching the gospel to that area of your life. Because you are an unbeliever in that area. See, the gospel's for unbelievers, right? So we think once we're in, we don't need it anymore. But the reality is I don't believe the gospel at my job. I don't believe the gospel in my parenting. I don't believe the gospel with my money. And so I need the gospel in every area. I got to be preaching the gospel every day to every area of my life because that's where God's power is. And so the reality is, is, I don't actually believe the gospel is the power of God. You don't actually believe the gospel is the power of God. And here's how I know. Because if you really believe that the gospel was the actual 
embodiment and power of God. If you actually believe that, there are two areas in your life that will change immediately. Not tomorrow, not in a month, not in a year. There's two areas in your life that if you really believe the gospel was the power of God, the gospel will change you immediately. The first area that would change is your preaching. And you're like, I don't, I'm not a preacher. I'll explain what I mean by that in a second. Okay? And the second area that would change if you actually believe that the gospel is the power of God is your evangelizing. So, so let's, look at, let's look at each one, okay? The first area that would change, if you, be, if you believe right now that the gospel was the power of God, it would change your preaching. And here's what I mean. I mean that in two senses. It would change the way you receive preaching from people, okay? Here's why, here's why. You know one of my favorite things? Literally, my favorite thing that someone can tell me about preaching is this. When someone comes to my church and says, hey, man, I was at another church last week, or hey, man, I listened to a podcast last week. I was, I was listening and meditating on a passage, you know, whatever it is. And, and, and they say, you know what bothered me about the preaching I heard? They never brought up the gospel. People tell me that all the time now. People who've been at Tri-Village for several months or from the beginning. They say, you know what bothers me about person A, B, or C, whoever it is, is that it's a great sermon. It's good stuff. But it's all about do, 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 do. And they never brought up the gospel. And I was like, what the heck? Where's the gospel? See, what I love about that is that they're not talking about me. I'm not doing anything special. Is that the gospel is the power of God. And so they preach a sermon without the power of God. I don't know about you, but I got enough issues. The last thing I want to do is get up and preach without the power of God. Okay? And so that's why, again, because it's not like, oh, your preaching is so great, Will. No, no, it's that you're saying, I experience the power of God because you give the gospel every week. And every time I hear a sermon that doesn't, it's like, what the heck is this? This is moralism. This is works-based righteousness. And again, like I said earlier, the thing that most convicted me as I wrote this message is that I honestly am convinced I don't give the gospel enough to you guys. Seriously, I'm not doing this enough. I'm waiting too long to get to it. Because the gospel is the power of God. And so if I want you guys to change, it's not going to change from me yelling or through my gifting or through my, my outline. It's going to change because the gospel changes you. Because it is the power of God. So, so people come up to me afterwards and say, man, I love when you get passionate at the end. You know, you get, you get so loud and you get so black and your veins start popping and, 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 and you start sweating. And it's so powerful when you get loud. Listen, it's got nothing to do with me getting loud. The reason why you're being transformed by that part It's not because of me. It's because of the power of God. You feel God's presence. You feel God's power. That's what's happening. That's not me. That's not me. So so that's what we see, that you you feel something when that happens. One pastor says that when the gospel is actually preached, you're changed immediately. That's why D.L. Moody says that the gospel is like a caged lion. And all you got to do is open the cage up. It'll do what it's got to do. I don't need my, 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 my rhetoric and my oratory skills. The gospel will do what it's got to do. It's a lion. Okay? So, so it changes the way you receive preaching. But you know what it also does? It changes the way you preach to yourself. Did you know, uh, Martin, Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, every day you're preaching to yourself. Did you know that? Every morning. You know that the person who talks the most to you is you? And every day you get up, there's a soundtrack in your mind. And it's either telling you you're great or you're not great. You're, you're good looking or you're ugly. You're, you're skinny or you're fat. You're worthless or you're, you're worth something. And that soundtrack is playing again and again and again. It doesn't matter what anyone else says to you. You are preaching to yourself more than anyone else. But if this is true, if the gospel is the power of God, then now you have a new message to tell your heart. You have a new message to preach to your soul. And it's what Jesus says that matters. Not what you say. Who cares what you say? It's what Jesus says that matters. 
You start preaching that to yourself and it changes you. You know, I heard someone put it this way, that the gospel is so powerful that it changes us past, present, and future. When you believe the gospel, it takes away the penalty of sin, which is the past. It takes away the power of sin, which is the present. And it takes us, eventually, it'll take us from the presence of sin in the future. So the penalty is dealt with, the power is being dealt with, and one day the presence is going to be completely eradicated. That's what the gospel does to sin. But when you are not preaching the gospel to yourself, then you're living like there's still a penalty, that you're still under the power of it, and there's really no hope for the future. That's why a lot of us are living so defeated. That's why a lot of us are living the way we're living. There's no hope in that. And like I brought up earlier, there, there's so many people who, who are living in, in defeat. There's some people who are living in discouragement. But it's because they don't understand what they've been given. They don't get it. You got to preach that to yourself every single day. My acceptance, my approval, my applause doesn't come from my boss. It doesn't come from my children. It doesn't come from my spouse. It doesn't come from my, my bank account. It comes from Jesus. That'll change you. I promise you. Because a little bird told me that it's the power of God when you do that, that you're accessing. Okay? So the first thing it does is it changes your, your, your preaching. The, the second thing it does, though, the second thing that the power of the gospel does is if you really understand it, it, it changes your evangelizing. It changes how you evangelize. This is what we're all about this morning because it's missions fest, right? And so it changes how you are on mission when you understand the gospel. And here's why, here's why. It changes both the goal, it, it changes both the goal of evangelizing and the means by which you evangelize. So let's look at the first way. It changes the goal of evangelism. Guys, I want you to, Remember, for those of you who were here last week, remember we were looking at the, the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus, in his wisdom, he gives us the three ways in which we find new idols, the three ways in which we go treasure hunting. He says that we, we, the heart believes, then the mind be, uh, beholds, and then the body or the will behaves, right? That's, that's, the, that's how it works. But here's what a lot of us do when we're evangelizing. Instead of going after someone's heart, we go after their will. And we try to change them by changing their behavior. And so we start asking people, hey, you should stop sleeping with the person you're with. Hey, you should stop smoking, or you should stop uh, cussing, or you should stop drinking, whatever it is. But you're going after the will without giving them the way to change. That's, we don't need behavior modification. We need heart transformation. And a lot of us, what we, what we think is evangelism is changing the will. It's changing the behavior. You know, there's parents here who have prodigals. You maybe have a child who, or a son or a daughter who's not living or walking with Jesus. But if you're totally honest, what you really want you don't necessarily want them to be saved. What you want them to do is to stop embarrassing you. So they're the black sheep, right? So what you want is not necessarily a, a child of God. You want an elder brother. You, want, you know this parable of the prodigal son, right? That the, the younger one went away and was a sinner. The elder brother looked great. He did all his chores. He checked all the boxes. He was great. And what a lot of people are praying for is not actually salvation. What they're praying for is behavior modification. Son, daughter, please just stop embarrassing me. Please stop making me look bad. Please start behaving like an elder child. Get good grades. Make good decisions. Get your life in order. Get a job so I can look good. That's an elder son. That's, that's an elder brother. That's not, that's not the gospel. We preach to the will because we just want them to behave. We don't really care if they believe. We just need them to behave. 
So it changes when you understand that the, the gospel is the power of God. It changes, it, it literally changes the goal. The goal of, 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 of the gospel, the goal of, of evangelizing now is not behavior modification. It's not an elder brother. It's, it's a brand new adopted child of God with a new heart and a new vision, a new perspective because of what Jesus did. But you know what it also changes in our evangelizing? It changes the means by which we evangelize. You know what are the things that really ticks me off? And I know part of it is because one of my giftings is evangelism, like I'm wired towards evangelism, but even if I didn't have that, it really bothers me when people say this. I talk to people and they're like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm trying to reach my, my neighborhood, or I'm trying to reach my family, or I'm trying to reach my coworkers. And it's been 5, 10, 20 years. And you're like, well, how are you trying to reach them? Well, I'm trying to be a good example for Jesus. I'm just trying to live out my faith. Live it out. And one day they're going to ask me. No, they're not going to ask you guys. <laughs> they just think you're religious and stuck up. No one's going to ask you. See, the, the power is in the words of the gospel. So all, if all you are is in a walking example, they don't know why you're behaving. Because Muslims behave and Jews behave and Mormons behave. So what, what's different from you? So it changes the way you actually evangelize because now you actually have to speak up because the power is in the, ver in the words of the gospel. Not in your example of it. Not in your works, but in your words. And you know the last thing that changes when it comes to means, the means of evangelizing? I had a professor at Moody, and he always, say that, he always said that you win people to what you win them with. And, and here's what he always meant. He said, the reason why you got to be very upfront with people about the gospel, even though it's offensive, is because you, you, it's better for you to win them to the real gospel than a false gospel. You know how I always bring up the, the problem of prosperity gospel? You know what gospel is just as dangerous as the prosperity gospel? The false half-baked gospel. The watered-down gospel. That one's just as dangerous. And so when you sell people, when you try to win people with Disney for Jesus, and then they start walking with Jesus, and it's not Disney for Jesus, then they walk away. Because you didn't win them to what actual discipleship is. So yeah, maybe your church is growing, and there's tons of people showing up, but then when adversity happens and life happens and discipleship happens, they leave. Because what you win them with is what you win them to. That's what we see here. If we really believe the power of the gospel, it changes how we receive preaching, it changes how we preach to ourselves, but it also changes the goal of evangelizing and the means by which we evangelize. So let's go to the three points again. I'm concluding with this. So we've seen the barrier to the gospel, which is us. We've seen the power of the gospel, which is the God's power. And the last thing I want to look at this morning is I want to look at the hope in the gospel. The hope. According to Paul here, we have hope in the gospel. And I'll prove it to you by reading the last verse. Look what it says in verse 17. He says, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So here's what I want you to see here. What Paul is saying here is that the hope that all of us have, that all of us want, that all of us need satisfied is found in the gospel. And again, you might be sitting here thinking, well, you don't know me. How do you know what my hope is? How do you know what I'm hoping for? We've never met before. Well, the reason why I know is because God has created all of us. And because God has created all of us, there's something inside of us, there's a hope that we all have, whether we know that we have it or not, that only the gospel can satisfy. According to this passage, there is something that the gospel can give you that nothing else can give you. And it's the one thing 
that your soul and your heart most need. And the thing that the gospel gives you that nothing else can give you and that you most need in your soul and your heart is that word righteousness. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, some of you may never even have heard that word before. You're like, wait, 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 wait. How do you know I want righteousness when I don't even know what righteousness is, right? And what some of us think when we think of righteousness is we think of someone who's lived a righteous life. And if they live righteous enough, they are, they are living in righteousness. But that's actually not the definition of righteousness in the Bible. You know what the word righteousness means? I have a definition here for you. It is to live up to a particular standard or to be found acceptable and or worthy. That's what the word righteousness means. It means to live up to a particular set of standards and to be found acceptable and or worthy. That's what the actual biblical definition of the word righteousness is. So in light of that definition, righteousness is the thing that your soul and your heart most longs for, whether you like to admit it or not, whether you know it or not. This is what you most need. And the reason why the gospel is the ultimate hope is because the gospel is the only place where you can find righteousness. Okay? Now, here's what happens to us. Ever since the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve, they sin, right? They're they're in a garden, and they sin against God. When they sin, one of the things that they lose that a lot of people don't realize is they lost the righteousness. They had the righteousness of God. When they sinned, they lost the righteousness of God. Before sin entered the world, they lived up to a particular standard. They were found acceptable and worthy by God. And then when they sinned, they lost their righteousness. Listen, ever since that day, ever since that moment, you and I have been trying to find that righteousness again. We are all in search of righteousness. And here's what happens. Here's what happens. There's a part of us, though, deep down that knows we can't ever get God's righteousness. There's a part of us that knows that bar is just too high. So you know what we do? We settle for lower forms of righteousness. We create our, our, our lower forms of righteousness. So, so I can't live up to God's law, so I'm going to come up with my own moralistic laws. And as long as I live up to my standard, I'm righteous. Okay. Or a lot of us have political righteous, political righteousness. As long as I vote for the right candidate, I'm righteous. Some of us have family righteousness. As long as I'm a good dad or a good mom or a good parent or a good spouse, then I'm righteous. Some of us have career righteousness. As long as I'm doing good in my job, as long as there's money in the bank. That's why a lot of pro athletes fall apart when they leave their sport. Because their righteousness, their acceptance, their, acceptance, their worthiness has come from this sport. And all of a sudden they got to retire and they fall apart because they're no longer righteous. They can no longer find the acceptance. They're no longer living up to the standard they had for themselves. And so they end up in drugs or in bank- bankruptcy because that's where their identity was actually found. And so what happens is we know we can't live up to God's righteousness. So we come up with our own lower forms of righteousness to make ourselves feel better. But deep down we know that the eyes that really matter still haven't approved us. Deep down, we know that the standard that really matters still hasn't been met. Every single one of us believes that, whether you're an atheist or an agnostic or any other religion. Deep down, we all know there's a standard that we can't live, to, live up to, and there's a, there's, we haven't been acceptable, found acceptable and worthy in God's eyes. We know it. Intrinsically, we all know it. And so we settle for lower forms of righteousness to make ourselves feel better. Okay? So then here's the question then. If the gospel is the only place where righteousness is found, but we discovered in the first point that the greatest barrier between us and the gospel is us, then what hope do we have? How can we ever actually attain this righteousness if we lost it back in Genesis and haven't been able to get it back since? How can we ever actually get this righteousness back? Here's how. Because the gospel, listen to this, the gospel is much more than propaganda. The gospel is a person, okay? The gospel is much more than just a message. The gospel is a messiah, 
And what the Bible says is that Jesus, who's that person, who's that Messiah, he came down. And here's what Jesus did that was just crazy. Jesus, he, he, he dealt with our sinfulness for di- by dying the death we should have died, okay? So Jesus, he dealt with our sinfulness by dying the death we should have died. Then he provided us a righteousness by living the life we should have lived. He dealt with our sinfulness by dying the death we should have died. He provided a righteousness by living the life we should have lived. And so it says in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30 that Jesus Christ is our righteousness. He's described as our righteousness. It's not propaganda. It's a person. It's not a message. It's a Messiah. Jesus Christ is your righteousness. He is why you can live up to a particular standard. He is why God finds you acceptable and worthy. Not because of what you do, but because of what he did in your place. Listen, once you get that, once that hits you, it changes you in two ways. It changes your status, but it also changes your your stability. The first thing that changes when you understand that Jesus is your righteousness, that Jesus is the gap between our barrier and God's righteousness, once you understand that, the first thing that changes is your status changes. And then when, when your status changes, here's what essentially the Bible teaches. And you guys have heard me talk about this in the past. When Jesus, when you place your faith in Jesus, he takes your sin. He gives you his righteousness. So if I were to illustrate it to you, here's what he does. Imagine I'm sitting here and I have a filthy, dirty shirt, right? I'm I'm just filthy from the top down. What Jesus does when you place your faith in him, there's two parts to what he does. He takes away your filthy shirt, so he takes away your sinfulness and puts it on himself. And he takes his white, perfect shirt and puts it on you. So not only does he deal with your sinfulness, he gives you his righteousness. So pretend we were all a billion dollars in debt. Jesus doesn't just pay your debt and leave you at zero. Because if you're at zero, you still can't go to heaven because you have to be perfect. Right? Jesus doesn't just pay your debt. He pays your debt and then gives you a billion dollars. So now you're a billionaire spiritually. One pastor put it this way. This is what Jesus did when we, does when we place our faith in him. Jesus, it's like we're all in death row, hours, about the, hours left before we die. When we place our faith in Jesus, not only does he take us out of prison, he takes us to the White House and we get a purple heart. Jesus gives you the righteousness that your soul desires. So that status, your status changes. Once you understand your status changes, then all of a sudden you have stability that you never had before. See, the problem with finding your righteousness in anything other than Jesus is that you're not stable. You're up and you're down and you're up and you're down. Why? Because children are going to disobey. Money is going to dwindle. Your company is going to downsize. Your health is going to decline. But Jesus is the righteousness that never fades away. We have it forever because we didn't get it. He gave it. We didn't earn it. He gave it to us. Man, once I I understand my status, now I have a stability that no other righteousness can give me. And the reason why the gospel is so powerful is because the gospel gives you what you need, not what you think you want. Every other religion gives you what you think you want. The gospel gives you what you actually need which is righteousness. One pastor put it this way. He says that what we all deep down, what we want more than anything else is we want praise from the praiseworthy. So some, all of you can come up to me, and if you don't really know me, you can say, hey, man, you're very humble. Hey, you're really godly. Well, that means a lot, but you don't really know me, right? But if my wife said that to me, 
The person who spends the most time with me, that's a whole different thing, right? Because I'm getting praise from the praiseworthy, someone who actually knows me and yet fully accepts me. In the gospel, we get the ultimate praise from the praiseworthy. Because God knows you fully and yet accepts you fully. And yet loves you fully. And yet justifies you fully. Because when he sees you, he doesn't see you. He sees Jesus. And so when, he t- when we're about to do baptisms, when Jesus comes out of his baptism, uh, God says, behold, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. If you are in Jesus, God is well pleased with you. 